Are you ever anxious? I certainly am. And it occurs to me that we probably can make ourselves extremely anxious just thinking about all the ways that we can become anxious. And we can, we can worry about the economy or our jobs. We can get stressed out over politics. We can fret over our relationships. There are so many things that we can be anxious about. And what should we do when we're anxious? What we should do is pray. It's a perfect time to ask God to give us peace and comfort. And how about those moments when we face difficult decisions, those profound decisions when we know that making the right decision or the wrong decision will have significant consequences. I face those kinds of things, and I know that you do as well. And in those moments, we should pray. We should ask God to give us wisdom and discernment. We can make the right choice. And then are you ever tempted to engage in behavior that's wrong? Behavior that's harmful to you or to others. Behavior that falls short of what our loving God expects. I face temptation and I know that you do as well. And in those moments, we should pray. We should ask God to protect us and to give us the self-control that we need to do the right thing. In all of these areas of life and in so many others, prayer is vital to our well-being because prayer is the lifeline that connects us with God. And here's the wonderful thing about prayer. It's really simple. You don't need any special skills. All we have to do is talk. And I think most of us know how to do that. But isn't it interesting that even though prayer is very simple, it's not always easy. Sometimes we may struggle to talk to a God who's invisible. We may worry about what to say and not to say and how to say it. We may wonder, are there certain things I shouldn't even ask for? And we may at times have doubts about the effectiveness of our prayers. And all of those kinds of questions can become roadblocks, roadblocks that impede us from spending more time in prayer. And the reality is, if, the, if you and I do not pray consistently, then our connection with God simply cannot stay strong. Prayer is our lifeline, and we need it to be strong. That's why we've decided that in 2018, we're going to dig deeply into the topic of prayer throughout the year. We want everyone to experience growth in this vital part of the life of faith. So over the next 12 months, we're going to talk about prayer, and we're going to teach about prayer, and we're going to experience prayer together in a variety of ways. And we don't yet know what all that looks like. We're praying about that. One of the things we're doing is we want to create a visible representation of our prayers. Every week here in the church, we receive prayer requests. Some of you write them down on your connection cards and turn them in. Some people send in emails. We have the the, the weekly missionary spotlight prayer. We have our 24-7 prayer list. And for this year, we're going to do something new. At the end of every week, we're going to take all of those requests, some of which, by the way, are confidential, and we're going to shred them. And we're going to put them here in this prayer box on our platform. 
And the idea is that this is going to grow. And whenever this little box fills up, in a couple of weeks, you're going to see a big box back here, a big tower on the back of the platform, and we're going to empty the little box into the big box. There's nothing magical or mysterious about this. It's not a contest to see how much paper we can generate. It's just a way for us to watch the cumulative effect of our prayers grow and grow toward heaven. It's a visible sign that we are praying individually and together for God to be at work in our lives. So that's something that will happen throughout the year, and we will be talking with you about other ways that we're going to experience prayer together. And to start off this year of prayer, we're going to spend the next four weeks examining some biblical principles and some biblical examples that hopefully can make prayer more enticing and more enjoyable and a richer experience for each of us. And this morning, we want to talk about what it means to pray like a child. I find it really interesting that at a few key points in his ministry, Jesus used children as an example for adults. And he did this because he wanted his followers not to be arrogant, but to embrace the simple faith of a child. Now that can apply to our lives in a number of ways. But I think it's interesting to consider how that might affect the way we pray. How might you and I pray differently if we offered childlike prayers? I want us this morning to start by looking at what Jesus has to say about childlike faith. Now, the Bible contains four distinct biographies of Jesus. And what's interesting is that at times, these different biographers emphasize different parts of the same story. Matthew and Mark did that when they wrote about a particular incident involving Jesus and his disciples and a child. And so to get the most complete version of the events of this story, we need to combine what's recorded in Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 18. And that's what you see here on the screen. And here's what we learn in this story. They came to Capernaum, that's Jesus and his disciples. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is serious business. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this story is familiar to many of us, and we often boil it down to one simple statement. Our faith should be like the faith of a child. But that's, that's really a very general statement. I think we need to ask, what does Jesus specifically mean when he urges you and me to become like children? Well, we know that children can be pretty selfish. They can be petty. 
They can be disobedient and whiny and demanding. And it occurs to me that at times we can be that way too, can't we? Now, Jesus obviously is not talking about that kind of behavior. And we get a clue to his meaning when we recognize that he's addressing a specific problem that has cropped up. His followers are arguing about who is the greatest. They're jockeying for position within their social circle because of the very common human problem of pride. Each of them wants to be considered smarter than the others or more spiritual than the others or more important or successful than the others. They want to be great. Spiritual maturity, though, is not built on human greatness. It's not built on what we think we can accomplish on our own. So rather than try to pompously elevate themselves, Jesus wants them to change. He wants them to think of themselves the way a child should when that child is surrounded by adults. So what kind of childlike attitudes might Jesus actually want his followers to adopt? Well, I can think of at least three. Children should have an attitude of humility which is a recognition that adults know more than they do. Children should have an attitude of dependence, which is an acknowledgement that adults can do more than they can, they can. And children should have an attitude of trust, which is a willingness to rely on caring adults. And I think back to my own childhood, and I realize that those attitudes were just an elemental part of my daily life. I was dependent on my parents for food and clothing and basic essentials. I had to lean on their knowledge and their understanding to learn many basic skills. And even when I moved into the teen years and thought that I knew everything, I so often was humbled by the wisdom my parents had because of their greater life experience. And because of the way that my parents loved me and cared for me, because I knew that they wanted the best for me, I trusted them. Humility, dependence, trust. Such attitudes are a routine part of childhood, and yet we often try to throw them off as we move into adulthood. And that's why the disciples argued about who was the greatest. Focusing on personal greatness, though, isn't good. It's not wise. It's not healthy. It creates barriers in relationship. It leads to an unhealthy level of self-sufficiency. And so Jesus calls this child into their midst and basically says, you guys aren't great. Not unless you change and become like this child. Now, he's not trying to undermine their self-esteem. He just wants them to recognize that in the spiritual realm of life, we're all children. Children under the care of a loving, heavenly Father. He's great. And we're not.
And so rather than be prideful about our perceived greatness, Jesus wants his followers to be humble and dependent and trusting toward God and each other. And if we make the choice to embrace these values, we will be changed. Our conversations will be different. Our behavior will be different. And even our prayers will be different. So what does a childlike prayer actually look like? I think we find a great example in the life of a Roman centurion. A military officer who encounters Jesus in an amazing story that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Let's take a look. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, and listen to this. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. To grasp the meaning of this story, we need to understand some things that are not in the text but would be very obvious to anyone in the first century when this took place. We need to understand the status of a centurion. A centurion was a key battlefield commander within the Roman army, usually responsible for a hundred men. And he made many on-the-spot leadership decisions in the midst of battle, so he was used to being in charge. And not just anyone became a centurion. Centurions were selected for their bravery. A centurion has experienced the chaos and bloodshed of battle. They have been under fire and they have demonstrated a tremendous level of courage. If you're a centurion, you've seen it all. And you're not easily frightened or shocked or amazed. A centurion has earned the right to walk through life with confidence and even arrogance because he was a man among men. And men like this are used to getting their way. And they're used to even carrying their assertive attitudes over into their behavior toward civilians. As a case in point, I have a friend who's a minister, but he spent 20 years in the army retiring with the rank of full colonel. And now that he's no longer in the military, he constantly has to adjust his behavior in order to act appropriately toward non-military people. I once was visiting his church, and at the end of the service, he strode to the platform and he barked, stand up for prayer. (laughs) And he sheepishly had to say, "I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Would you please rise as we close our service in prayer? (laughs) You you see, people who are used to commanding others find it hard not to command others. And this would be true for any military officer and even more true for this centurion. 
It would be very true in this case because the Romans had conquered the Jews. The Jewish people are ruled by Rome. Most Jews are not Roman citizens. They are a subordinate population. And this centurion has every right to bark orders at any Jew and expect immediate compliance. And so in this moment, he could come up to Jesus and exercise his authority and demand that Jesus deal with his concern. He could even make threats. And he doesn't. He approaches Jesus and calls him Lord. Lord statement of great humility, a very public statement in front of a crowd of people. He is acknowledging that he is in the presence of someone who is greater. And even more astonishing is that this centurion is not asking for himself. He's asking on behalf of his servant. Under Roman law, a servant is property with virtually no rights. If the centurion simply got rid of this sick servant because he couldn't perform his duties, no one would question that behavior. And instead, this centurion is willing to publicly humble himself to help a subordinate member of his household. This is an amazingly humble, unselfish request. Now, why does he adopt this particular approach? I believe it's because he recognizes that the well-being of the servant depends not on who he is, but on who Jesus is. And in this moment, all of the centurion's military accomplishments are useless. His position in the Roman army is completely irrelevant. He can't control this situation with his own wisdom or his own resources. And he knows that Jesus doesn't owe him a thing. He knows that he doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. But here's the bottom line. He can't heal his servant. And if he chooses to rely only on himself, his servant will continue to suffer. And so the centurion lays aside his pride and makes this unselfish request. And he does so because he understands exactly who Jesus is. And he understands exactly where Jesus' authority comes from as he spells out in verses 8 and 9. He tells Jesus that when I issue a command, I know it's obeyed. Why is it obeyed? Because I'm under authority. I operate with the authority of Rome standing behind me. And the centurion is applying this same principle to Jesus. All Jesus has to do is pronounce a word of healing and it will come to pass because Jesus' authority comes from God. This man is making a profound statement of faith because he's acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the personal representative of the Heavenly Father. And this centurion obviously isn't a child. He's a man's man. But his request of Jesus is framed like the request of a child. And just as a child knows that a parent can do so much more, this powerful and accomplished soldier recognizes that Jesus can do far more 
than he can. And so he makes a request that is shaped by humility, by dependence, and by trust. It's a childlike prayer. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go! Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. The most amazing thing about Jesus' response to the centurion is that he was amazed. Because in the Bible, we see people often being amazed at Jesus. Jesus rarely is amazed at people. There's very little we can do to surprise him or amaze him. I've only found two instances in the Bible where Jesus expresses amazement. One is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus expresses amazement at the lack of faith he finds in his hometown of Nazareth. And here he's amazed at the great faith of a Roman centurion. And it's great faith, not because of the centurion's greatness. It was great faith because it was childlike faith in Jesus. It was humble and dependent and trusting and showed no sense of arrogance or entitlement. He made no demands. He just asked. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for the Jewish people gathered there. And makes a very pointed criticism about the unfortunate attitude that many of them have. And in verses 11 and 12, Jesus describes a great feast that will take place in the future when he returns again to establish his kingdom forever. And, and, and there are some Jews who look forward to that day with a sense of prideful entitlement. Their attitude is this, we're Jews. We're God's chosen people. Of course, we'll be seated at the great banquet table. And in fact, they thought there only would be seats for Jews. The idea that a Roman military officer could actually get a seat at the Lord's banquet table, that would have appalled them. But Jesus is saying here that everyone who is like this centurion, everyone who approaches God with a childlike faith has the opportunity to be present at that great banqueting table in the kingdom of heaven. And the sad fact is that people who approach God with a sense of entitlement will miss out because they depend too much on themselves rather than rely on the greatness of God. Jesus says this centurion has the greatest faith he's ever seen. And it's because instead of focusing on his own greatness, this very confident and accomplished military officer made the choice to depend completely on Jesus. 
And so I don't think it's any surprise that Jesus granted his request and healed his servant. I love this story because the centurion provides us with a wonderful example of the principle that Jesus previously described. He shows us how to make a childlike request. And since prayer is just talking, we can talk to God in the same way that the centurion did. And when we approach God to make requests, we can do so with humility, with dependence, and with trust. To bring this down to a very personal level and to help us see this in practical terms, I I want to offer a couple of sample prayers. Let's suppose that my wife is sick and I want to pray for her healing. Well, here's a way I could pray for her that would not be childlike at all. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would heal Julie from her illness. She and I have served you faithfully for many years, and we've given sacrificially of our time and energy to minister to others. And it's so disruptive for me, and it's distracting for me to have to care for her when she's ill. And I can't believe this is how you want me to spend my time, Lord. And the work we do is so important to your kingdom, and we know that you want this to continue. So please restore her to health quickly so we can get back to doing the work that you've called us to do. I hope you see how presumptuous a prayer like that would be. Certainly not humble. It's filled with a sense of entitlement as if God owes me and my wife something. Rather than simple dependence and trust, it's a prayer that makes demands of God. Now, I've never prayed a prayer exactly like that. But I have to confess that there are times when I have prayed as if God owes me something. And I've listened to a lot of other Christians pray and offer prayers that sounded proud or made demands of God. I've heard people pray and say in effect that God should answer their prayers because they're such generous financial givers to the work of the church. I've heard people pray and essentially say, God, you should answer my prayer because I'm a good person. I'm not like those sinful people over there. Jesus actually tells a parable about the problem of that attitude. (laughs) You see, we can come up with all sorts of attitudes and reasons why why we should feel entitled and deserving. But that's the exact opposite of the great childlike request of the centurion. And so here's a way to pray that's much more childlike. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your love and your care. And I recognize that you don't owe me anything and that everything good I have in this life comes from you. And I know, Father, that sometimes you do choose to heal people from sickness. And I have every confidence that you can free Julie from her illness if that's your plan. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you could just speak and she would be restored to health. But I don't presume to know your plans, Lord. And so I just throw myself on your mercy and humbly ask that you might restore her to health. 
Now, the exact words don't matter because there's no formula for prayer. What matters most is our attitude. And that's what we learn from these two Bible passages. We discover this great principle from Jesus and a great example given by a Roman centurion. And through this, we see the beauty and the power of childlike prayers. And one of my hopes is that throughout this coming year, as we devote ourselves increasingly to prayer, that we will learn to pray with the humility and the dependence and the trust of a child. Praying like a child is the best way for you and me to pray because we're children of the Heavenly Father. And we can pray like children to our Father because we know that our Father always has our best interests at heart.